And my book, though. Sorry. Someone comes at you with a bottle. That is a deadly weapon. He's got to take the consequences. I know that in my heart. I also know that he's just trying to protect his brother, you know? I know. But a bottle, that can kill you. It's a case of it's you or him. If he come at you with his bare hands, that'd be different. And that wouldn't have been fair. Well, technically, your bare hands can kill somebody, too. They can be deadly weapons, too. I mean, what if you knew karate, say? He said he was a lollipop man. He was a lollipop man. What's a lollipop man doing now in fucking karate? I'm just saying. How old is he? About 50. Well, what's a 50-year-old lollipop man doing now in fucking karate? What was he, a Chinese lollipop man? Jesus, Ken. I'm trying to talk about... I know what you're trying to talk about. Hello there and welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio and this is episode 24. Or as I like to call it, Tom and Mario find art in child death. We try. We try. Um, (laughs) Why'd you do that? Where am I supposed to go after that? Both of our films have child death in them this week. They they do. There's pretty pivotal parts. They do, Mario. Or about Um, child death and... We're just what's wrong with us? A lot of things. What's the matter with us, Mario? You know what's wrong with the world, Tom? Is is the continuing Whoa. COVID? Well, not necessarily the world. It's just a, <clears throat> a country that has a lot of determination on the film in general. And because of that, first cows now coming out in a couple of weeks, and uh, Trial of the Chicago Seven has been sold to Netflix because Paramount does not know when it can be released in theaters. Yeah, so I here mean, we are. The- Four films going to Netflix. Netflix is. Basically, trying to get every single film made right now. It's just this year. I like the Tenet thing and the Mulan thing. Um, that stuff's next year, man. It's just not. It's just not happening. Like I don't I, really care I what think, Christopher Nolan thinks. It's just not going to happen. I think Tenet comes out in December, and Dune gets pushed to the summer. I mean, I guess, but if Tenet comes out in December, that means Wonder Woman's also getting pushed back, which means like. It's just like an avalanche. I mean, that means James Bond is also getting pushed back at some point, which means that like Top Gun's going to get put back, pushed back because Top Gun was supposed to be December also. I mean, Top Gun should get pushed back to next summer. I don't understand why it's releasing in December. I mean, I don't really care about any of this stuff. I'm just, I'm very, oh, in, oh no. in the big, in the big movies, I'm very interested. I, I think the next big movie to, for us that we would be interested in seeing that may be relegated to streaming is what the french dispatch i mean does like the studio candy man candy well candy well, no. again candy man probably candy man is candy man's the one i'm i'm next after all of this the one i'm next like what hoping goes to streaming i mean it kind of suck but i think you know eventually it runs into the wall that is halloween you know and and you just it uh it they're gonna lose they're never gonna make that money back so no. might as well just dump it and try to make something from it which I think is what's happened to the trial of Chicago seven. Unless it yeah. people have looked at trial of Chicago seven, like they looked at Greyhound, like they looked at some of these other movies. And they're just like, that's not very good. I mean, Let's I just don't dump think it on Netflix. 
I think if it was, I don't think Netflix would have given him $50 million. Like, given Paramount, not that much. It's possible. I guess you never know. I mean, at worst, I think it's going to be like a Molly's game level of quality. Sure, which is not great, but is also not the worst movie ever. And then the sad news this week is is the death of Carl Reiner. Um, I was hoping he could make it another seven months to see the end of the current occupant in the White House. I hope you all make it another seven months to see that, Mario. Yeah, I might, might be hard. Um, but yeah, great director, great writer. You know, can't much can't, can't much say anything bad about him. He seems like a good guy. I, I yeah. referred you to the the Carl Reiner WTF and um, from a few years ago, and he seemed like a, he seemed like a really decent guy and um, sharp wit. Also, to the end, yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. So Mel Brooks will be sad. They were very. Man, already, I think he already. I didn't read it yet, but he already uh, spoke. He. I don't know if you wrote an article or he spoke to Variety about uh, Carl Reiner. So. Oh really? I haven't, okay. I haven't given that a look yet, but. Good. You know. It's two fun. days after his, two days after Mel Brooks's birthday too, our day after Mel Brooks's birthday. Ah, Carl Reiner. But the but the great thing is the last like major public photo of Carl Reiner is uh, him wearing a Black Lives Matter T-shirt with Mel Brooks. Perfect, perfect. It's pretty great. Yep. So I think to Carl Reiner, we will toast a beer, as we are want to do. Um, well, we're want to drink a beer. Usually we're not toasting. Sure. <laughs> of our first toast, I think. I don't think we usually do toasts. No, no, no. Uh, this is Fat Orange Cat, one of my favorite breweries in all of Connecticut, and I don't. I'm surprised I we haven't done a Fat Orange Cat on this podcast. It is Baby Kittens, a New England style IPA, six point five percent. Fat Orange Cat is quickly becoming one of the bigger, uh, more popular breweries in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. They're kind of doing a big sprawl of distribution. You were able, like you said, to get this. They had almost a full hopefully. line of Fat Orange Cat, whatever is out there, at Total Wine in Milford. Um, which is doing yeah, curbside pickup. So, and that is what um, Fat Orange Cat's doing. Fat Orange Cat went from a, it's a small operation in East Hampton out of a farm uh, mm. with chickens running around and some goats. Uh, they used to be very prim and proper. They have one of the best uh, tasting schedules of all. And they, you spend five dollars, you get four little tokens to uh, little wooden pogs basically to spend beer. But you also get a tasting glass that you get to take home. Oh, that's pretty good. Five dollars. Five bucks. And uh, yeah, they they run the gamut. They uh, do jalapeno ales to really solid stouts to um, some of the few New England style IPAs I actually enjoy. Hmm. So to Carl Reiner, to Fat Orange Cat, and to the eventual destruction of Donald Trump. Cheers. This is a a highly balanced. Uh, this is a beer I, I, I drink regularly. It's a highly balanced, flavorful New England style IPA. It's not trying to do a lot in terms of overwhelming things. It has a nice creamy mouthfeel that I want from a New England style IPA. Yep. Um, it has a slight, nice stone fruity balance to it. Uh, it's just, it's really good. It's almost, I think, a sessionable New England IPA, but I, I, I struggle to say that because it's still a little heavy. Um, and it's also 6.5%. So nothing 6.5% should be sessionable. Yeah, it's good. Um, I don't really have a lot of um, t- to add to that. You can almost kind of taste the haze, which um, yeah. I think is an interesting thing with some of these really hazy beers. They finish with a kind of like, I don't know, like oatmeal type of flavor, like a well, that? Like, the malt, that, the that, maltiness, that malt, like yeah. right, like right at the end there, and it's it's kind of nice. Do you know what this finishes with? 
you know that first bite of a peach not like where you get that that peach fuzz mm. in in the mouth a little it's bit like that it finishes to me at least for me um or maybe it's nectarines good. i'm more of a nectarine guy but it has a really heavy peach flavor yeah that's nice that's a, that's a good one mario thank you very much you're welcome. I hope I don't There's, get to three of these tonight or else this is going to turn into what we thought was going to be a short episode into a long episode. Uh, your number 24 is a little longer than your number 25. Uh, so it would take some doing for us to replicate our feet from last week, which is to oh. match the length of the movie we were talking about with the the section of the podcast. So, um, no. but as Our all, second longest episode. Yeah, that was good. That was good. Um, even longer than some of the best of episodes? Longer than both of them. Wow. That's good. It's we did good only, last week. The only episode that is longer is Claire Denis. The, is, and the odd thing about last week, Mario, is that I don't think we sounded annihilated by the end of that episode. Most of, our, most of our really long episodes, we are we are, yeah. we are, are all the way in. I think um, uh, by the end of last week's episode, I had had maybe two beers. I think I had yeah. two beers. We're growing up, Mario. Getting old. Getting too old for this stuff. Um, <laughs> all right, so... We're going to do um, – last year was a weird documentary year. There's obviously some documentaries. There are some documentaries that I like, but we didn't really talk a lot about documentaries last year like we did in, in 2018. Um, there's already been a few um, very highly regarded documentaries that came out this year. The first one we're going to talk about is another uh, production from President uh, Barack Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama's production company, Higher Ground. Uh, it debuted at the Sundance Film Festival and won the Audience Award. Um, it is directed by Nicole Newman and James Lebrecht. It is Crip Camp. The world always wants us dead. We live with that reality. At the time, so many kids just like me were being sent to institutions. It was just a continual struggle. Most disabled people, like myself, are unable to use public transportation. We needed a civil rights law of our own. A rehabilitation program has been vetoed by the president because it was cost prohibitive. We decided we were going to have a demonstration. You get the call to action to the barricades. A small army of the handicapped have occupied this building for the past 11 days. So many people from Camp Jeanette found their way into the building. The FBI cut off the phones. The deaf people went, we know what to do. That's how we communicated to the people outside the building. The Black Panther Party would bring a hot meal. We were like this. We are the strongest political force in this country. We will no longer allow the government to oppress disabled individuals. And I would appreciate it if you would stop shaking your head in agreement when I don't think you understand what we are talking about. In the early 1970s, uh, a guy named Larry Allison... um, I guess took it over, or he worked there, or whatever, and he turned this Camp Jeanette um, into a place that was for people with disabilities, and people from all over the New York area, and seemingly, I guess, from all over the country came to to this camp, and uh, they all talked about how it was kind of the first time anyone had recognized them for themselves, it was the first time they were around um, in a place that was made for them, that they could be themselves, didn't have to feel ashamed of themselves. Um, you know, you had teenagers there, you had people in your twenties. Um, the interesting thing about this camp though, is that all of these people that had this experience at this camp then took the feeling that they had and the meaning that that camp gave them and took it out into the world and started, um, acting towards 
making the the country as a whole uh, more um, friendly or fair or equitable for people with with disabilities, which meant, um, you know, marching in the streets, which meant confronting uh, Congress people, um, which meant confronting the secretary of who was that uh, was the secretary of. Oh, Jimmy right. Carter's um, idiot guy. Um, yeah, I can't remember off the top of my head. What is he the secretary of? I don't even fucking remember. That guy sucked. Um, but they, I mean, the movie kind of culminates with uh, Judy Newman, who, you know, weird thing about this movie, and me and my wife were talking about this, she seems like someone who should, there should be like children's books written about this woman and like what she did and, and, and how she literally changed America, you know, um, like not single-handedly definitely but like she was the focal point of all of this stuff and there really isn't so i mean if this movie can do anything it's put judy newman kind of in the in the or judy human in the forefront um a, a group of disabled people uh staged a a protest in an office in san francisco where they were trying to get um Jimmy Carter, uh, like we said, his his secretary of we should probably look at uh, Joseph Joseph Califano. Joseph Califano, of health education, and health education. We wanted him. They wanted him to sign um, a uh, document that said he would enforce the law that was uh, included in um, this this broader um, equal rights uh, bill that was put before them, which meant that. Uh, places would have to, um, yeah, five hundred four, five hundred four, Article five hundred four would have to um, make you know, in those places being schools and subways and libraries and office buildings and government buildings would have to make them handicapped workplaces in general, yeah. And they put this article in this bill, and it was never enforced. It was never enforced, so no one ever had to do anything about it. And they were sick of this stuff, so they occupied a building for twenty days. They did hunger strikes. Um, you know, multiple, multiple cities too. multiple cities. And, uh, they got the thing passed and then the movie kind of transitions from there into uh, the same group of people working to get the, uh, Americans with disabilities act passed in, uh, 1990. Um, so there's a, there's an unfortunate, uh, shot of George Bush with a really big smile on his face thinking he's like a, (laughs) a superhero. Um, after he was in the Reagan administration, which tried to cut all the budgets for all of this stuff. So they didn't have to offer services to any of these people. Um, Crip Camp is, uh, uh, James Lebrecht is one of the people that's featured in Crip Camp. He, uh, has spina bifida. He spends most of his time in a wheelchair. Uh, it's one of these, you know, he's a kind of great model for whom to kind of live this thing through and that he really found himself at this camp. Um, you know, my quick thumbs up, thumbs down review. It is, I thought this was, uh, a, a, a stand, a stand up documentary. I thought it was, uh, really well done. They had a lot of great footage, um, that they could use. They had really compelling people. And I thought it, it was, um, well, not, you know, what's the term we were using? It wasn't like reinventing the documentary reel to the point where it like, um, some of the the song choices and things like that were very like just seventies. If you're making a movie that's set in the seventies, you have to play these five songs. Um, and those five songs were in there. But other than that, I thought it was a, a really, it was really well made. It was really kind of elegantly done where they transitioned from like, this was about all these people to kind of, um, 
after a while, uh, Judy Human just kind of became the like the the rudder on which this whole this whole enterprise turned. Um, and it was it was really good. I mean, it was it was it's a like an emotional it's an emotional movie. Um, but I think it earns all those emotions. So, yeah, I would have to completely agree with that. Uh, it is not reinventing the wheel. It, it's not doing anything um, particularly new. However, there is a wholesomeness to this film that uh, kind of penetrates that. It is a film also that I think holds a great regard because it allows its subjects to speak. Even yep. with when there's, oh, man. you know, there, there's obviously the the effects of their disabilities. Um, it, it disregards any of that in in the scope of you know tightness or editing mm-hmm. and instead allows those subjects to to speak to speak their mind regardless of whether or not it keeps on track with the theme of the story it allows you to dwell closer to the subjects these people that were in this camp and that gets you very close to the subject it's, it's a very great sort of humanist piece yep. of of work um it is significantly better than the first film that Higher Ground produced, The Atrocious American Factory. Uh, and, you know, this is one of those times where I would be willing to say, while I don't think has a film, it is particularly phenomenal, has a, a choice of subject and has a execution of such, um, it does that extremely well. Which I guess, in a, in a sense, is is an excellent film. Well, and I feel like it's one of those movies that you can it can go either way. It can be really, really saccharine and manipulative um, in a lot of ways that I thought maybe not saccharine, but manipulative. That American I would, Factory I would say was. it is. I would say it is saccharine, but it's not manipulative. And it you can be saccharine when you're when you're honest about that. Well, so that's the thing. So it's not. I, I would say that because it's so honest, and because these things are real. You know, it's so it was. It, so it's one of the benefits of being able to follow these people through their lives. Is So they're making this case that this camp was really important. And we get to see actually how important that camp was. Um, which I think in a lesser movie, you just show an hour and a half of footage from the camp, interviews about the camp. And then you're just like, this is the movie about a camp that's really, it's, isn't that really great? And you're like, yeah, that's pretty good. But this movie goes way deeper with that stuff. You know what I mean? It takes it takes the messages. I think it does a really good job of establishing what the messages are in the camp. And then just like the people in the camp did, the, the film takes those messages along with them. And kind of and it does and, so and scaffolds them to make a new message at the end. And yes, and it does so by humanizing the characters in the camp. It, it, it creates... Um, the, the tribulations they suffered both as a result of the prejudice in the world around them has mm-hmm. a ma- and also the tactical actual physical barriers that were presented by the government and by private business but also represents um the uh, shows sort of the difficulties that came just from having the disability and the matter by which acceptance both from the population in general and you know which would include access and which would include humanization of, the, of disabled individuals, um, that works so well in terms of making you pull for, pull you from, you know, the establishment of the story of the camp to the bigger story of um, the 504 yep. and to the ADA uh, uh, passage. Uh, you know, some, some of the greatest moments in that are, you know, when that the married couple is uh, just talking just about how they have sex and then eventually kind of leading, but also at the same time, they're both like, she's a writer. 
He's a bank manager mm -hmm. and it kind of builds like upon all that. It, it's, it's, it's crass in a lot. It comes off like crass in a lot of ways for the type of film it is. It's R-rated film. It doesn't hold back on any of the language, but that leads into just his desire to have a child and um, how the child's the one to never look at him as having a disability. And whereas a lesser film that would feel as though your hand was guided to that, it is just a natural evolution. And everything about this film feels like natural evolution. Yeah. I, when they're showing you all the people who have passed, past um from the disabilities or just from old age like in the case with larry when the final person is is nancy yeah um the breck james the first girlfriend like that that's a gut punch but it's it's a, an equivocally smartly done gut punch um in terms of just like bringing you back right next to these people yeah and i think and especially in the times that we're we're living in which is a phrase i'm really sick of saying i wish the times would just be good and we don't have to talk about how shitty they are. Um, when they were doing this, when they were doing the sit-in, when they were occupying that building, and then um, the Black Panthers came, and they were like, you know, they had a kitchen that they were that they would cook food in, and they were cooking these people food, and they were bringing them food, and they were, you know, taking care of them and helping them out, and they were just like, if you were, your fight is is our fight. That that fight for equality, for equity extends like we like to we just like to divide everything up and, and and look at everything in a vacuum and compartmentalize everything it's like no this is all the same stuff you know what i mean the fight for this article in and and for this act and for this law is the same fight for you know that's that's going to be coming now and it's it's weird you know um never learning stuff while always simultaneously learning stuff and i think this movie at this time was really good at kind of illuminating some of those um, some of those basic fundamental truths about um, who we actually should be striving to be as Americans, as opposed to who like some of the people in this country want to believe that we are. Yeah. And, and I think there, that's kind of highlighted. I agree with that um, in terms of it being the systemic issue and this kind of pointing that systemic aspects of it. Uh, there's that great line, you know, by Judy human who I, who in, in you know, you look at her and just go like, that woman should have been like a U.S. senator. Um, well, she should have been. She should have won the Nobel Peace Prize. But, you know, yeah, I don't know what, what the deal with that is. And it leads to that great moment where humans talking to I don't know if it's Calfano or Congress. And he's kind of nodding his head along. And she goes, you know, I, I really wish you wouldn't nod your head yeah, because you don't yeah. know what it's like. No. Um, you know, and that's that's just the same platitudes that you hear today of, you know, like Blackout Tuesday or um, and, and, you know, not not to co-op the same issue, but it's the same problem of just like every single corporation that dwells off of the division of equity and, and vast, you know, expanses between people, um, you know, posts the same kind of form letter about each new social issue that pops up. It's It just shows you how unfortunately commonplace um, people's indifference is well and that was and I, I think we're we're the longer we talk about this we can like we can if i think if we talked about this movie we'd essentially find that like every moment has like a like an underlying point but i think to pointing to that thing the other thing that i think illustrates that is like the that one journalist that was there that one awesome journalist who was like in the middle of san francisco wearing like a nehru jacket with a fur collar doing an interview i love that guy mm -hmm. with like the big huge mustache and he was like the one guy that was covering like that was paying attention to anything that was happening and he really um they got to really like this guy and he followed them all over the country because he was the one guy that seemed to take them 
seriously, that seemed to take this issue seriously. It wasn't just, it wasn't tokenism. It wasn't just a kind of human interest piece. Like he was able to really uh, gauge the significance of what was happening and, and have an honest human reaction to it. Um, I don't know. I thought Crip Camp was really good. I was really glad I watched it. Um, I think it's... Yeah, no, no, agreed. Um, it's one of these movies that's already been kind of earmarked for the Oscar whenever they happen. Like, I think as coming out of Sundance, everyone's like, well, that one's done. And they just kind of circled it and moved on with their life. So we'll see. We'll see. I think it would be weird for the Oscars to give the Obamas uh, <laughs> an Academy Award two, two years in a row. But we'll see. We'll see. Um, I think that leads us into the newest documentary uh, that is also getting equal footing of critical acclaim. Uh, uh, least this week it is also a netflix original film and that is athlete a usa gymnastics they are clinging to a process that has been used to silence dissent nothing turns out like i pictured it if i don't do something about it i can't live with that maybe if it's ever going to come out, it's going to come out now. Your days of manipulation are over. I'm here today with all these other women. Victims, survivors. We have the power now. Directed by Bonnie Cohen and John Sink, Athlete A details the 2016 indie star. um, expose on the sexual assaults committed by Larry Nasser, a uh, medical doctor um, and physical for the USA gymnastics team, who is reported to have and eventually, I believe, convicted yep. of assaulting over 250 women, um, ranging f- from you know people who who didn't make the national t- team all the way to uh, Olympians like Simone Bile and Ali Reisman. The film follows the titular athlete A, Maggie Nichols, who was one of the first people to expose to the indie star and to the greater world the um, assault being committed by Larry Nasser and USA Gymnastics, all the way from the president to some of the head coaches, uh, covering up of the crime. Um, For me, this is a film that has deep, significant social ramifications. It says that the systemic issues, once again, of um, burying assaults that have become a commonplace is still occurring. And, you know, since Larry Nasser's conviction, this has kind of fallen out of the public eye. Unfortunately, while it is, I believe, socially important and it's telling an important message, it does so in a film that is doing nothing in the least to reinvent, to provide anything new to the investigative documentary. It is a film that 
when compared to most other subjects um, of its like, uh, a great example being the Netflix Academy Award-winning Icarus from a few years ago, it does not do anything different. It does it, and unfortunately, the the subject matter, while important, doesn't carry the newness to it. I guess um, to to carry the intrigue, it ends up being sort of a rote, commonplace investigative documentary, and is also, in many ways, a documentary that is. Um, a little scattered in its mind, uh, as you're going to say and said uh, before the podcast. It does not know if it wants to follow the stories of the women, uh, Maggie Nichols and her family's dealing with the assaults, or if it wants to do a sort of spotlight or all the president's men journalism expose um, of the Indie Star. It is a film that I understand its reason for existing. It is not a film that I think warrants any sort of critical acclaim and, and um, should be quickly has a film forgotten but the subject should be remembered yeah um again uh agreed on a lot of that stuff i i it, i don't think you can have a movie that's both about the journalism and both about the girls and nor do i think you should i actually don't you know the journalists can have all the high fives they want maybe they want a pulitzer for this i'm not i'm not even 100 sure if they did because i don't really fucking give a shit um I think if you're going to, and I'm happy that, the, which is not true. I'm happy that they did the work. I'm happy that they exposed what they were able to expose. I'm happy they got the investigation of this, uh, this horrific, uh, era of humanity, um, going again and, uh, that they were on the right side of this and that they were fighting the good fight. And thank you journalists of the Indianapolis star. Um, but you've got 200 girls, who have all stood up in court, um, or not all of them, but a lot of them stood up in court that day on his sentencing and told him directly to his face uh, what they did to him and, and, and like what the effects of, of his actions were on them. And I think this that is the that is the that is the story. You know what I mean? The story is not so much how like the minutia of or the whiteboard activity in like the newsroom about how they're going to put the story together i think of those and i think to your point and we can i suppose we can jump off of here and, and kind of go bigger i think to make to illustrate our point further there was two parts of this that really bugged the shit out of me one when they were talking about this they were talking about the story you know i mean they were in the journalism room in the war room and blah 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 and then someone said um like, who knew about this? Like, oh, we have emails that's from Steve Penny and uh, Marta Caroli and this other person. And the the editor guy who's kind of like, I guess, the Michael Keaton Not character. Not Kathy Plagues, by the way. Or um, yeah. whatever, uh, Berta, whatever that guy's name is, was like, that's a good story. And it's like, fuck your good story, man. What the hell is that's a good story? Like, it's not a good story. It's a terrible fucking story i guess it's a good story for selling newspapers but it's terrible that it has to exist like i don't understand why this documentary is framing this like this why is the word that's a good story said in a kind of like that's a juicy story way included here the other thing that really bugged the crap out of us um watching it was like one of the final words of the documentary is from the lawyer for one of the girls talking about the thing that really bugs him is that these girls have had their like ability to enjoy sex taken away from them. 
and, and to really yes. love people. And I was like, come That's on, so guys, dying. come on. Like, why is this stuff in? Like, why is this one of the final voices that we hear is two minutes of this guy just talking about how sad, which it is sad. But why is this guy kind of mansplaining what is sad about these girls to everybody? It's just, and it's, I think I think it's kind of indicative of what this documentary. This documentary really means well. It has really good intentions. It has the best of intentions because this shit broke my fucking heart. But they just they just missed it. They as a, as a filmmakers they just missed it. Yeah, and um, I think also what's true about this the the the, the criminal proceedings alone are much more poignant um like rose the the judge rosemary aquilinos i don't know if you ever watched any of some of the proceedings like yeah, yeah. Some of the girls testimonies mm-hmm. um like ali rasmussen has has a great thing where she says like you're nothing you know mm-hmm. like when she she's speaking to him and but rosemary aquilinos reading larry nasser's like bullshit apology and as she's reading it she's taking the papers and like dropping them like they're garbage mm-hmm. you know and 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 i hate to to add um, sort of like, oh, that's that's really intriguing because it's not necessarily, it's not, it's not, I don't want to say intriguing, but that has much more poignancy. That has much more of an emotional grapple and a much more of a gra- an emotional punch than this film does. And I understand the importance of making sure that we keep on, you know, Kathy Cleggs and we keep on Steve Penny and we make sure that these fucks are brought to justice and yep. we make sure that there are deep systemic changes to GSA gymnastics, you know, like maybe we, Maybe it's erasure. serious, serious issues. Yeah, I yeah, I wanted to say that, but like, there, it's 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 the sport in itself is is an important avenue for people to find. Oh yeah, find themselves. But there's a, a deep erasure of the current system yes. by which USA Gymnastics does a a a destruction and rebuilding of it. Um, done in mind not of the organization, but done in mind specifically of the women and the men. Um who compete in gymnastics. That's what actually matters is the athletes. And the reason that and I hate to use it, you know, I'm not going to use the term that this is what the film should have been. What I say is that the film fails because the film is adding nothing to the table. You know, you see investigative documentaries like this, and even something that's, that's very rote and typical, uh, like a few years ago, like Icarus, at least the story of Icarus has this weird intrigue and newness to it that you didn't understand. But then you look at other investigative documentaries, things like, you know, Earl Morris's Thin Blue Line or, you know, the same type that would be later, uh, I think, improved upon with Imposter um, from, I think, like 2009 or Capturing the Freedmen's, you know, things that have investigative journalism, but they add their own sort of narrative tie to them. This felt like every single other investigative documentary I've ever seen before. Yeah, well, but the problem. And to that point, like the thing that doesn't work too is like I don't give a fuck about the indie star people. Like, make Shattered Glass into a documentary, and I would care about the news people in that story because that's actually an interesting thing where they matter. Like the fact that this story was done. <clears throat> yeah, I agree with you. It's great, but I don't give a shit about like it being a good story. I don't fucking care. They serve alone, just like as you know, an example of like Spotlight in a documentary made about spotlight, like the Boston globe would only serve as a catalyst for the actual problem. The journalists themselves deserves the the kudos for what they did and, and and the appreciation for what they did, but their story ends when we get to the meat of things. Well, I think your, your comment about the idea that this movie brings nothing to the table, I think is an interesting one, especially in light of something like Icarus or in some of the other, like just kind of sports oriented documentaries that we've seen in the last um, we've seen in the last few years. Icarus has no stakes. If no one ever raced professional bikes ever again, 
we'd all be fine. Even probably some of the bike riders would be fine. Nobody cares. There's real like my meniscus feels great. Yeah. I don't know why my knees don't hurt like all the time anymore. (laughs) I I can breathe the same way on every elevation. Um, This movie's stakes are bigger than like anything. There's bigger than every sport combined and most of the stories within those sports and like everything. Um, so you can't do a normal, you can't make a normal movie. You can't make it just like a standard issue Netflix, like investigative movie. Like you said, you just can't, you have to, you have to frame this in some way. You like, they framed that Elizabeth, uh, what's her name? The, um, uh, the woman with the blood. Oh, I don't. What's the name of that? I don't remember, but the woman had the, um, I'm going to do it. Elizabeth with the blood. I'm typing that into my, oh, the Theranos movie. What's her name? Elizabeth Holmes. The Elizabeth Holmes. Oh, okay. I thought, sorry. I thought you were talking about in this film. I was like, I don't remember what you're talking about at (laughs) all, but I'm just going to quiet. With the, with all like the Theranos stuff. I don't care about that either. And that has that has like a lot of political and, and societal ramifications attached to it in terms of like um, how we invest in medicine and how medicine gets paid for and shit in this country, like big, big things. But those people brought they brought like an element of of newness to this. You know what I mean? Uh, to and again, they're not like they're not changing the way documentaries are made, but they're presenting them in a way that makes you care about the process of getting this woman figured out. You know what I mean? This movie, the, the process of, of uncovering this is just ham fisted in there to like the most heartbreaking stories I've, you know, that a person can hear. And with some videos and I'm, I, I think they did a bad job with those Larry Nasser videos. Nobody needed to see them. He was already convicted. And these women are speaking graphically about like, what he did to them, there is no reason to show that stuff. That's just uh, like exploitative. That's sensationalistic. Um, yeah, and and it just I, has I, no business being attached to this. When you're talking about like an important documentary, I look back to two years ago and Lifeboat, the documentary short that goes not made yeah, for this, oh, yeah. uh, documentary. And like that's an emotional punch that's doing some aspect of investigative journalism. It's more sort of just a human interest piece. Uh, it's It's not doing a lot of things very differently. Um, but it's it, the way in which it's constructed puts you there, puts mm-hmm. you next to it. And this film is so distant because it's so scatterbrained that you know it it, it hurts everything. It, it it does it does a real disservice to the subject. Um, yeah, and I felt really bad for um, for Maggie Nichols because I thought she's athlete A, and the movie she's forgotten for like she a good, is. And, half of this film. And then she comes back at the end and I feel so happy for her that she's essentially dominating collegiate sports and she's kind of found her joy again. And But it's, it's I feel like these people are kind of piggybacking off of her experience to make this movie. It didn't, like, so where Crip Camp had a, a, a feel of real honesty, like, this needed to be shared and this needed to be um, experienced by lots of different people. Um this didn't. This didn't have that honesty feeling to it. This had a kind of, a kind of, um, a, like a weird voyeuristic quality. Like at times, that kind of 
that kind of took away from like what should have been like a a more a, a more joyous, happier um, ending. Yeah, no, it, that's definitely true. And and to end of that point, I guess I'll finish with this. Um, you know, like I said, great yeah. intentions. Um, it's important to bring this back into the light, but it does end up feeling framed in a way that just doesn't. It just feels it feels wholly wrong. It it, it does a, a true disservice. It, it like you said, voyeuristic. It, feels exploitive um and it 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 does not carry the thread of the plot through it doesn't end up bringing you close to their stories the same way that the the cnn coverage of the trials did or or their own words you know the 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 gymnast's own words did like this film is it paltry paltry um pathetic facsimile of of the true horror mario you can go on youtube and you can watch all that stuff and you know what will not be included in any of those videos of those like immensely Indie brave star. and courageous women? Not even that. Um, like going up and, and, and speaking their pain to their like abuser's face is slow motion shots of gymnasts flipping through the air. Like stylized yeah. slow motion shots. Like they just won't be there. And they're not needed. Like you don't need to do this stuff. No one was, no one who has heard about the story is like, I think I could take this story easier if I had some slow motion gymnastics shots that weren't even that aren't even real that are like stage gymnastic shots. Mm. I'm throwing my arms at Mario. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do about this. Um, what what to do is to, you know, bring a lot of those fucks to justice and forget about the film itself. Mm, yeah, I mean, uh, let's. There's got to be one. Maybe I'll find a link. Maybe there's like things that you can donate to and stuff like that. And if there's some links and stuff, I'll put some on the. Uh, we'll put some on the twitters and we'll put some on uh, the show notes and stuff like that. Um, because I definitely the idea of the, of keeping this stuff in in mind and the same thing with Crip Camp. You got to keep all that stuff in mind too because the government sucks and they can take that stuff away from you uh, anytime they feel like it. And everyone's gonna like in the next couple of months, everyone's gonna be experiencing some hard cuts as they try to reconcile with the ramifications of what just happened. So. Um, yeah, because apparently nobody's a Keynesian anymore. What? I said because nobody is a Keynesian anymore. Even though Nixon said at times of great, this is a, a bad quote. It's not a direct quote, but at times of great crisis, everyone's a Keynesian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nixon. Apparently, we just we forgot about that. No, but <laughs> like that was actually one of those good things he said because it's true. When at times of great emergency distress, the government steps in and creates the demand. And then at times when the demand's there, you tax it. It's a balancing act. All right. Um, All right. Okay. So that's it. So we will be, we will be back. Wait, is that our, it? Our, our twenty fours. We will be back with our twenty fours. We're gonna do it. That's what, All right. That's what it, what it. I don't know. Welcome back, folks. Um, so for the next, for 24 to 17, uh, I've actually haven't talked about the unifying theory in a while. I remember when we first started this podcast and I would talk a lot about like in the 60s and 70s, I'd be like, well, this is my thinking in terms of why these movies are lumped together. And this is my thinking about why these movies are lumped together. We really haven't kind of talked about that. Um, so we're getting back as we get closer to the end of this list. We get closer into we get deeper into the the thinking behind how this list got made, at least for me. So I knew that twenty five 
the Virgin Suicides was going to be an inflection point. I really had 25 movies that I knew were going to be kind of in competition for, like some spot in, in that top 25. Um, Virgin Suicides seemed like a good inflection point. It kind of spoke to uh, some of my feelings uh, that I had about uh, being a being a teenager. It had some... But some of those like kind of ambiguous feelings as well. Some stuff I still carry with me, but some stuff I've let go of. It's a really, it's like a, a much more interesting movie than I think a lot of people um, like think about or talk about or kind of even even realize. I think you know it's kind of seen now as maybe like um, you know it's just the movie before Lost in Translation or it's a Kirsten Dunst movie or whatever. But it's for me, it's an impossibly interesting movie. Um, but it was never there was never a time when I thought The Virgin Suicides was going to be my number one ever, like from having seen it to now. Numbers 24 through 17, Mario, are, were, at some point in my life, the best movie I'd ever seen. They were number one. At some point, all of the movies that we're going to talk about over the next um, seven weeks were in the number one spot. And it could even be. my movies, it's really weird. Yeah, even your movies. Uh, well, some of your movies, yeah. And it could have been one of those things that's um, it was it existed for one day until I saw a movie like two weeks later, as I think is going to be the case with my my number twenty four, uh, or it lasted for a really long time, and it's one of those things that only after kind of repeat viewings and thinking about stuff and how my life has changed that. Uh, that movie is kind of some of the lusters come off that movie, or it's just like a an inescapable movie. But at some point, all of the following movies were on uh, at the top of the list, which I think is really interesting, um, and it'll be really interesting to kind of think about it and to go back and and and, and uh, just kind of investigate that stuff. So, but we're gonna open with my number twenty four. Uh, it is a movie that we've talked about before, even though it hasn't been on any of our lists yet. Uh, it is. Guillermo del Toro's 2006 film Pan's Labyrinth. In a dark time when hope was bleak, there lived a young girl whose only escape was in a legend that wanted her back. The legend speaks of the lost soul of a princess from another world who will one day be reborn. Uh, unfortunately for you folks who are just got really excited to have a long Pan's Labyrinth conversation, we're going to be talking about Pan's Labyrinth in a few weeks, four or five weeks, six weeks, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure when it shows up on your list. Mario, uh, but for the people that are paying attention in the next, you know, maybe 10 weeks, 12 weeks, I don't even really, I don't have your list in front of me. I don't bring my notebook into the, into the studio with me. Um, we're going to be talking about this movie again and we'll talk about it at length. Uh, so we will, I will, uh, omit. The summer will not be over. The summer will not be over. Okay. There you go. Yeah. There you go. People keep track. I will admit the long, um, and very detailed because I'm not sure there's another way to talk about this uh, synopsis of, of what the movie is. Suffice it to say, um, Guillermo del Toro has created a 
fantasy masterpiece. Um, we talked about this. When I say we talked about this movie before, we talked about it in our best movies of the century so far. Um, it both showed up. It showed up as number three, I believe, on both of our lists. It was my number three for sure. I think it was your number three too. We did that a lot last year. Um, I don't think I read directly what I wrote in my notes, and these notes are on the website if anyone's interested. But in lieu of kind of rehashing the synopsis, let me just read what I wrote about about Pan's Labyrinth on my uh, top twenty list that I posted on the website. It says. Uh, it, I called it a work of supreme imagination. It is easy to say that by tying the story of Ophelia and her nightmares and dreams to myths, legends, and the Spanish Civil War, Del Toro was trying to artificially raise the stakes and heighten the drama. But that is reductionist. It's also easy to say that Del Toro's influences are so present that he is synthesizing or ripping them off. But this too is reductionist. Because Pan's Labyrinth is about folktales, it is structured like a folktale. And like a folktale, it borrows from other sources to construct something else, an amalgam of material that fits a current age while seeming like it, was all, it has always been there. Full of images and settings that seem conjured rather than built by set designers, every viewing of Pan's Labyrinth feels as if you are opening Pan's book for the first time. And inside you are encountering a wonder... Much like Spirited Away, which we can talk about, that is too rich and full of life to believe that any of it was a dream, let alone a movie. My first viewing was at the beautiful Orange Cinema, the biggest, which we've talked about before, the art house, the biggest art house cinema ever in the history of the universe. Uh, it was a it was a multiplex with I think like ten theaters that only showed art films, and I saw it alone, and it I couldn't even believe it. Couldn't even believe it. I didn't think. It all, I, you know, you kept looking for, you kept when you watch a Del Toro movie, especially when he's really like on his game, not Shape of Water, but in those really <laughs> like the key Del Toro things, you keep looking for, you look for the seams, you know what I mean? You look for the places where what seems really real is not real, and in Pan's Labyrinth, literally everything looked real. One of, and it's, I think it's one of the things that, like on Devil's Backbone, that always kind of bugged me, was the, uh, was the the mist that was always kind of floating out of the kids, the ghost. You know what I mean? That kind of water, that that watery mist that was just like, because it looked really fake. And I was like, oh, everything here is working so well and kind of establishing this, this reality, this not an alternate reality, but like a legitimate second reality, or or. Or a vision of of the reality you're currently living in, um, just like some a reality that you weren't aware of, a reality that you wish you were six years old or ten years old, so you can go into like a, a hedge maze or something, or inside like a big bush or inside a wood, and you can discover like all these things. Um, there are no seams in Pan's Labyrinth, just in the same way that there's not a lot of seams in the second um, Hellboy movie. Which is fantastic. Um, I would love to do like a second, like a separate episode just talking about the second Hellboy movie because the Golden Army is kind of amazing. It was his follow up to Pan's Labyrinth, um, and he does a lot of the same stuff. It is impossible for me to find my way out of it when I get in there. Um, everything seems less real um, on the other side of Pan's Labyrinth, and for that reason, until I saw another movie in two thousand six, it. Uh, it was it was like the best movie I've I've ever seen. Um, I hadn't ever I hadn't ever seen anything like it. I hadn't even you know what's weird about like when you say that you haven't seen anything like something that 
I think with Pan's Labyrinth, like you ha- I had, I had never considered that I would see anything like Pan's Labyrinth, um, and that just made it all the more special. It seemed really, uh, it seemed unique to me. It seemed unique to my experience, and uh, yeah, like I said, for that reason, it is, uh, it was number one, and it was only time, and uh, a deep connection, deeper connection to some of the things that. Uh, an adulting Tom Nolan was was experiencing um, that kind of that kind of continuously pushed it down to to where it is now. But um, you know, I don't know. Have do you have anything to add? I mean, we're going to talk about this. You know, so the films that come, the films that come up higher. Like I'll, I'll speak to. Um, I won't speak about the film because we'll dwell into that heavily in a few weeks. Uh, the films that come higher, especially like the film next week. And uh, the film at your 21, were those films, and your film at your 20, were those films you saw before Pan's Labyrinth or would see after Pan's Labyrinth? Oh, so I would see the my next week I saw before and my 20 I saw before. And the 21 I saw way after. But 21 yeah. speaks directly to my experience as a human. I mean, as to Tom Nolan's experience. Um, in an uh, in, in up until recently, very everyday way, um, my next week was a movie that uh, artistically, as a as a, it was the first movie I recognized as like a movie, and it was doing movie things that meant something, and it totally blew my fucking mind off. And then, so I, while Patton's <laughs> Labyrinth replaced it as a best film, um, it was so it's weird because it didn't, it's not as pivotal sort of right. thing. So if I actually like, kept, is pivotal. I've kept lists for a long time. I've been a list keeper ever since I saw I read High Fidelity and saw High Fidelity. I've been a list keeper. So I've always kept a top whatever list of books, movies, and records, um, and that's you know books, movies, and records. And at you could kind of if I kept them, and I wish I had kept them. I wish I was one of those people that like to keep things, but I don't. I love to throw things away. Um, you would have been. You would have seen. So my next week movie was number one for a, for a long time. Through most of like the rest of my high school career, it was the best movie I'd ever seen. Until I started seeing stuff at like the end of at the end of high school, and then those movies became like the best movie I'd ever seen. Um, until you qualified for a credit card. Until I qualified for a credit card, yeah. But those movies never became the best movie I'd ever seen. Those movies didn't speak to like that. Cassavetti stuff was awesome. But it like didn't do the stuff that like the movies that are coming after this after this did. Um, so it's going to be really interesting, and we're gonna like next week. I'm, we're gonna and I'll text you about it, and I'm gonna ask you to look at specific scenes, and those scenes are minor. But when I found out what they were doing, and next week is important too because it introduced me to something else. When I found out what it was doing, it kicked my fucking ass like all over the place. It blew my it blew my artistic brain apart i didn't even consider for one second that it was a thing that could have happened or that people did in movies but um you're my, out. my curiosity oh, with with pan's labyrinth and I, I will cover this uh, when i talk about it is there a particular scene in that film where it startled you and it kind of oh, yeah. culminated your feelings is is there a moment or is it just kind of the overall experience it's the overall experience but there are definitely moments there is um the initial the initial pan scene like when he first comes because 
you you know from the preview you you saw previews for this movie right i'm, I'm assuming yeah, I, was, I was i was eagerly anticipating right. it it was as, my as second was most I. anticipated film of that year um you want i wanted to see how it was going to be i wanted to see how it was going to look and how it was going to feel and how it was going to interact with ophelia i wanted to see it and it was better it was better than i could have imagined it and now when i watch it i kind of you you know when i say there's no seams of course there's seams and you can kind of see the choices that Guillermo del Toro was making in terms of how do I make this look real without allowing him to do too much that it doesn't look real anymore. Um, but it was it was like overwhelming and he wasn't nice. You know what I mean? You thought Pan's lab you thought Pan was gonna be this this like um maybe not nice, but you thought he was gonna be like a a, a sidekick or like Secret Garden esque character. Something. But he wasn't. He was like weirdly malevolent and mischievous and he had you know he had it was creepy and all this other stuff and it was awesome the second scene was when the colonel stabs that guy in the face with a bottle that i didn't know what to do with that movie because up until that point this movie wasn't about stabbing people in faces with bottles it was about something else and then the movie changed into becoming about the stakes got raised like higher than I thought they possibly could be when I was like holy shit he's living with a guy who is perfectly capable of casually stabbing a guy in the face with a bottle so when you when you say colonel you mean to put respect in your mouth and say Capitan Vidal right Capitan Vidal yeah sorry uh, great sorry we'll, t- no, we'll talk about we talk no, as a joke but we talk about it on my list that well, is a significant part. It's funny. It's I had Colonel in my brain because I do this other podcast for the library. And one of the books that I recommended this week was Buy a Colonel. And I kept saying in my mind, like, I just had the abbreviation from when I cut and paste. And I was like, Colonel, 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 Colonel. Make sure you say Colonel. Like, so you don't have to do this 500 times. So now Colonel is just in my brain. Everyone's a fucking Colonel. Um, but then the end. Because it looks like the movie's going to end. And the movie does end. But then the movie ends in the most glorious way that a movie could possibly end. And it it takes you to that other it takes you to another place. So when you leave, it's kind of hard to like I said, it's kind of hard to kind of get out of that the world that he's created, because the world extends now beyond um what kind of seems like the knowable world, you know what I mean? Like you all, I, I always thought I could find doors when I was a kid. I still think I could find weird doors in floors. You know what I mean? I still think I could draw on chalk and, um, you know, a door will open, but the ending takes you to a place beyond even those things. Um, and yeah, Pan's Labyrinth. No, no. I, the reason I'm not talking a lot about a lot is, 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 as I agree with most of this. The only thing I think I will talk about in excess a little more is, is Sergio Lopez. Um, just because that performance played a, played a huge role for like the way in which I saw villains and would kind of frame the way in which I saw a villain in a film that would come out the year later. That's much higher on my list. Um, about, well, nine spots higher on my list than mm-hmm. Pan's Labyrinth. And um, also, one of the reasons I deride a performance that was the following year after in 2008. Um, but <laughs> a lot of the things you say in terms of, of the place it takes you and you say, you're not typically a fantasy. You said off, off air. And I, I lost you for a bit over the fuckery that is zoom. Um, I don't know if you said that said it during this, but like fantasy's never been a thing for you. 
No, I'm um, not. I mean, I like it when it's done. Significantly. No, yeah, I like it when it's done well. And I think it's kind of, it speaks to a little bit of the stuff that we were talking about a little bit with It Follows. And um, something I'm going through, too, because I'm, I'm, I'm interested in the idea of, of horror and of, of, like, the dark fantasy experience. But I don't think, people don't do it in a way that I want them to do it. They do it in uh, a kind of way that removes, removes the reality and so I don't have to care anymore. And I think the beauty of Pan's Labyrinth is that it finds a way to leave all the reality in, even when it's doing it, like totally unrealistic stuff. Um, and there's not there's just not a lot of movies that I think can operate that that operate on that same level where they can do both things um, equally well. No, absolutely. Um, it is it is a hard hard nut to crack to do that. Yeah, and it does it so well that people still argue whether. You know, the in fantasy element is, is just imagination, you know. Oh, it's I mean, it's it's the question I think is there through the whole movie, but it's one of those things that like, I mean, I think the end kind of I don't know I mean, we could talk. We'll talk about that when we do when we talk about yours. Maybe that'll be one of the ones that we finally do. That's a whole like we did yeah, for 50, no. um, just like the Pan's Labyrinth episode, because I think we can kind of break it down and talk about like myriad things in that that work and that kind of um that kind of light us up artistically. And yeah, that would work because your 19 is also a film that works as a full episode too. Yeah. Goonies is a, Goonies is a deep movie. (laughs) Oh, it's Goonies. No. Oh, I, I, I I had the whiz. Sorry. On your list. Oh, Mario. Slightly higher. No, the wizard would be on it. The wizard. I first actually meant to say the wizard, but, uh, I end up coming out the whiz. We had a long, we had a long wizard conversation in our house the other day because we watched a preview for it. Because we've we're... had a long wizard conversation before. <sighs> wizard was wizard is another one of those movies that like, if if we had different parameters for this list, the wizard would totally be on that list. I mean, it's so bad. Oh, but it's so it's also so awesome. The Mario no, but Brothers. You don't understand, but you don't understand. It's so bad. Oh, well, the power glove. Oh, yeah, I love this that. This works episode. for a podcast, by the way. This people show. knew. People knew. Um, yeah, that movie was ridiculous. Ridiculous. They got some Super Mario footage before the game came out, man. It was the IGN of its time. Yeah, Super Mario footage that wasn't even real. <laughs> it was just like a vague sense of what Super Mario 3 was going to look like. And I love how a kid that's really good at arcade games is also really good at Mario Brothers 3. Ah, you know, tomato, tomato. All right, Mario, we will be right back with your number 24. It is rare that I eagerly anticipate a debut film that topping my list of, of, of the year is a, person's first foray into theatrical film. Um, but in the case of my 24, this was, I believe, my most anticipated film of the year. He had already won an Academy Award for a live-action short he had done a few years prior that I had seen on a whim. I had rented one of my first Netflix DVD releases, was a copy of the uh, best live-action short nominees, and it by far was my favorite of the bunch. Um, but more importantly, 
around 2005 with my girlfriend at the time, I'd gone to a, I can't remember what it's called. It was like the Reno, it was a small little Reno arts theater. Gone to this Reno arts theater. I can't remember exactly its name, but I had seen, I went to go see a play with my then girlfriend uh, because this play had an interesting premise, a premise that, that pulled me in, but I wasn't too familiar with this playwright, who playwright who would then go on to direct this film and you know be the one I anticipated. Um, he, by this point, was a, a very critically acclaimed playwright. And I was enraptured by this play. This play, The Pillow Man. I don't know if you've ever seen it performed. Or, I've or only have, have heard you talk about it. That's it. Yeah. Um, and just stunning adoration. I'm, I'm typically not a significant theater guy uh, mm-hmm. in general. Uh, the film we're reviewing next week, well, I'm definitely not a musical guy, so the film we're reviewing next week, I'm looking very much not forward to. Um, <laughs> but I was just enraptured by the brutal, nihilistic honesty of it. It was unlike what would come and, and what would precede it. It was... It was very humorless. It was, but it was so conveyed with this deep, surreal emotion. Mm-hmm. Even though the world invented around it had this lack of tactility, this this effortlessness, um, it was all at once just something that encompassed you. And much the same way, Six Shooter, um, his live action short that would win him an Oscar. Uh, Martin McDonald, I should say, um, did the same. You know, it wasn't Habs of Rapture. It was a much more tight production. Have you seen Six Shooter? Ever? Nope. nope. Brendan Gleeson on a train. You know, it's it's a really curt, short, short uh, film, but it's it's to this day one of my favorite live action short films ever made. And so with extremely bated breath, I looked forward to Bruges, but I had my slight apprehension that the transition from plays and the transition from shorts would, would not coalesque. It starred Colin Farrell, an actor who at this point in time was not held in the highest esteem. No. Uh, it, it also starred Brendan Gleeson, who at that time was very much held in high esteem. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the first film I saw when I got to Connecticut was this one. Whoa. And... It was in every single way what I'd hoped for, but in uh, most ways more so than that. Um, It was a a film that lived its words. It's a film that that breathed its story. It's a film that earned its emotion, even in the face of absurdist humor. Um, It was a film that for me flowed with such ease and 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 for the longest time i kind of looked at that film and thought it might be the greatest written film of all time now now i kind of like hesitate and say maybe it's not um but it is a film maybe with with some of the best dialogue i have seen uh, i think i think my number three is the only film i mean i grappled with my current number three in this film for the longest time to say which one had the better consistent dialogue that kind of connected with me that, mm-hmm. that, 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 that was what I want to see in a film. Um, my number 24 is the 2008 
crime comedy in Bruges. After I killed them, I walked home to await instructions. Get to Bruges. 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 Where's that? It's in Belgium. For two weeks, in Bruges, in a room like this, with you? No way. Been to the top of the tower? Guidebook says it's a must-see. Well, you ain't going up there. Why? It's all windy stairs. I'm not being funny. What exactly are you trying to say? They're a bunch of elephants. Mr. Blakely? Yes? You have a message. Number one, why aren't you in when I told you to be in? You better be in when I call again, or there'll be now to pay up. I'm telling you. He swears a lot, doesn't he? Ray and Ken are in Bruges on the orders of their employer, Harry, who has told them to sit, wait, see the sights, and look forward for his phone call. Because Ray has fucked up. He has shot a priest, but something else has happened. He has, at the same time, accidentally killed a child. This is Ray's first hit, and he deals with it in the ways that you would expect to, having accidentally killed an innocent boy, waiting to do his confession for, you know, being too moody. <laughs> and yeah. He he hates Bruges. He he wants to just go drink and have fun. He doesn't want to see the sights, whereas Ken wants to see the sights, wants to inculturate him, but there's something deeper going on. Ray is is grappling with the deep emotional trauma and deep stress of committing a heinous crime. Eventually, Harry calls Ken and informs him that this trip to Bruges was a final trip, a final pleasant thing for Ray to see, because by Harry's rules and moral code, the killing of a child warrants execution. He orders Ken to kill Ray. Uh, has Ken go goes to kill Ray, however, he sees him in a park planning to kill himself. And Ken realizes that Ray uh, is, is somebody who has, unlike Ken and Harry, has, has the promise of change and scuttles him off onto a train to escape and tells Harry to come and finish business with him. Um, unfortunately, some of Ray's problems with some Canadians uh, leads to Ray being brought <laughs> to the city. Um and a shootout occurs between Ken and Harry and Ray and Ken and Harry are killed eventually. Harry, by ironically, by his own mistake of his rule. Um, and Ray is left bleeding out, hoping as he has a realization that maybe heaven and hell do exist and hell might be an eternity in Bruges and he wishes he will not die. Um, First off, this, this is the film that turns the corner for me for Colin Farrell. This isn't really the reason it's a pivotal film for me. Um, I'd always kind of loved Colin Farrell, though. And I, yeah. I didn't have a reason why, because he wasn't, he wasn't no good. He wasn't very good. Uh, he, he's, he's hammy as shit in Daredevil. Um, but he's, So that's a movie where you should be hammy as shit. And uh, SWAT, he's just necessarily bad at in. Well, I was just looking uh, at his but, filmography, but is, and he's just made, he made like, Several Joel Schumacher movies. Joel Schumacher, rest in peace. Oh, before this, and I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot that. Um, this turns a corner, and this this is a film that I think is is impeccably acted by its three leads. Mm -hmm. All three of its leads bleed so close to the chest of Martin McDonald's just phenomenal script. Um, it is a script that that 
demands a certain cavalier of actor and, and everyone's brought to the forefront, you know, retract mm-hmm. that part about my cut funking kids is, is still a line that I think in, you know, the, the film criticism culture has repeated or, or, you know, you're an inanimate fucking object, like Ray Fiennes sells everything. And, uh, the, the moments, you know, that that's a primary reason this film shows up where it is on my list. The fact that it is an eminently quotable film. It is an eminently uh, well-flowed film. Everything flows one into another. It is a film that does not feel at all its 100 minutes in length. It's a sh- I mean, that's still a short feature. This is a film where when it gets to the part where Harry comes to the town, I am surprised that we are at the scene Harry's getting to town because I feel as though there's another 30 minutes to be had. It is, mm-hmm. it is always, and this is a film that I've seen just numerous times. Um, it is something that is always giving, it, it, mm. you know, just just by by the sheer level of Mark McDonald's um, knowledge uh, and grasp of it. Just seems like almost every conceivable entertainment art form. Uh, it wasn't until this time watching that uh, I noticed when Harry calls Ken. Uh, Ken is watching Touch of Evil mm-hmm. and once the phone call happens, it is the beginning of Touch of Evil and once he's that, that cuts away from that from the phone call, the entire scene is one cut, one shot. And I thought that was a little kind of funny, clever little you know, jo- like in-joke sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's not something you ever really notice. Uh, but ultimately, the thing that works for this is the fact that it is a film that you know, I think I think is best compared to my number um, nine and my number three in the fact that they has a consistent constant flow you want to stay in this world this world has a real i don't want to say necessarily earnestness but it is a world in which you want to remain in um luckily i think he repeats this um to a lesser level uh in a film i talked about in episode zero seven psychopaths i feel he kind of misses the plot slightly while still doing an accomplished job in three billboards, but uh, Martin McDonald just just is, is an absolutely stellar writer. Um, this is a film that I think shows uh, pivotal brilliance in the fact of somebody who he's still a young man. He's still only 50 years old. He is a writer who, as long as he stays with it, is going to be somebody who I think has kind of the true great classic film in his grasp. Um, Mike, he has had with... Uh, with with the stage um this is a, a film that is here not for my own personal attachment to it because i do have a deep personal attachment to it for the sake of it it knocking off all of the buttons i want but it is here because i think it is eminently a film that captures everyone um it is a film that that i think everyone could have enjoyment for so it is a great piece of art it is a film that has uh, fantastic layers um the, the constant conversations of bosch mixed with the imagery of bosch and um you know the last judgment that kind of question of of it, bruges being ken's heaven as it were and Ray's hell like like there's there are these thematic pieces yeah. in there um but it is still ultimately a film that i think i've never heard a critical word about uh, the most i've ever heard is is some mixed things being said about its um, side characters. Uh, but beyond <laughs> that, it is a, a film that I think just stands on the shoulders of you know some, some of the great written cinema of the 21st century. Well, 
Get ready, Mario, because I'm about to about to throw some criticism at you. No, not really. Um, it's funny because I, we've been talking. About, I feel like we've been talking about this movie for ten years. Um, you and my we aunt, have been. You and my aunt have <laughs> were the only people who I like. I like in Bruges. You and my aunt seem to be the only two people I had ever met that were just like, yeah, in Bruges is one of the best movies I've ever seen, and. I hadn't like it hadn't ever occurred to me to think that when I saw it, and I was just like, "Yeah, I guess in Bruges is really good, and it is really good. It does some, it does a couple of things which I, I don't love, but it's not in Bruges' fault. It's like my own fault. It's just stuff that I can't get behind in any movie that does it. Like I don't really like, except for really history of violence, like vague gangsterism. So like Harry, I, I it's hard for me to feel anything for Harry or about Harry because Harry's just like a gangster." who has guys who kill people for him. And that's as much as we get of Harry. He has his principles. Um, and he has his kids. And I guess he has, Mark McDonough tries to like insert a little bit of, um, kind of character building in there, but there's not a lot. And I think the same is true about Ken where, when, you know, they're at the cocaine party. My, the only other criticism of it is the cocaine party. And then Ken starts talking about his black wife, um, and you know, during the race war, um, that, um, Jimmy says they're going to have, uh, or that's going to occur. Like, he's like, which side of, do I fight on? Um, I, I would have been awesome if Martin McDonough could have found a different way to kind of insert some more of Ken's backstory into. Well, the bad thing is to, to really put this in there, yeah. there's a deleted scene of, um, Harry's Harry, like, Played by Matt Smith, by the way, played by a young Matt Smith, pre Doctor Who. Huh. Going and seeing a young Ken as his as she's dead, you know, his wife mm-hmm. has been killed. Um and Harry, uh killed by a, a, a police officer, a detective. Mm-hmm. Um, young Harry goes into a police precinct and then decapitates the detective. And wisely they cut that shit out. Right. Because it is the dumb I was like, oh my god, that is it's like the worst possible choice I've ever seen. Um, and also, there's actually to that point, there's some other things about Harry that they kind of cut out. Uh, originally, there's a thing in the screenplay about where Ray and Kenner talk about the reason the priest was killed. And Ray says, oh, he must have been like a pedophile. And Ken goes, no, he Harry, he was just opposed to a land deal that Harry was trying to purchase. Hmm. I think like something like that would have actually been interesting to keep in there. I, I think he take, excises it to maybe not make Harry such a straightforward villain. Yeah. I think that would make it too much of an emotional toll on Ray and make Harry too clear cut of a bad guy. Uh-huh. Um, but it's there. Like, like there's definitely an intent to do that. But um, I, I agree that they're they're not fully formed characters. And but and I, like I'm okay with the not knowing exactly why the priest died thing. I just assume in movies like this, like he, there was a reason. Like might not have been a good reason. It probably wasn't a good reason. But um, he had a reason. And all of these gangster movies have like a certain honor. Um, code attached to them and like things have to happen because they have to happen. That's, that's present in this movie too. It's weird. I'm actually very appreciative of this process because I really, I, I didn't think about in Bruges at all when I saw it and you know, only upon you talking about it, but even then I didn't really think very hard on it and I hadn't seen seven psychopaths until you put it on your list. Um, where which is funny we did ten movies in one episode. I think you and me watched like 
10 movies in, yes. in like a week and a half just to prepare so for much it. um we were really we were really on to something there um i really liked seven psychopaths a lot like and i know it's an uneven weird movie but it is uh and it has the same thing. It has like you know, Woody Harrelson's just like a general gangster person who does gangstery things and has you know, people have to pay when the things don't go right for the gangster person. But I really loved, I loved Three Billboards, and it's been actually, uh, it's been really interesting getting in touch with Martin McDonough as a filmmaker in this way, because I think he really does have something. I hope that what you say is correct and that he is able to kind of let go of some of the things that he really likes. Uh, like the use of dwarfs, like as a kind of novelty, he really likes that for some reason. I don't know why. Um, he should, (laughs) he should lose that as quickly as humanly possible. Um, but not because it's like offends me or anything like that. I just think it's it. I think some of those little things kind of get in the way of him making like a fully like paying attention to like making a movie that's that's fully um, consistent, like you said on the screen. But there's he's got he, there is something there. He arrived fully formed. Um, the way he uses that Carter Burwell score is amazing. It's it's and I think there's a lot of ways. The movie that kept coming to mind this most recent time was um, was Fargo, and I wonder if it's the Carter Burwell score kind of got into my head. This movie kind of like there's some scenes where this movie like out Fargo's Fargo in the sense that it's it's really comfortable. He's really comfortable, like sinking into uh, like the nihilism or the fatalism or even like the cynicism that being alive or um, no, yeah, as literally being alive kind of makes you feel that like your life can just be taken from you at any second by anybody for any reason, um, by any manner. And I think the Bosch stuff is really kind of indicative of that idea. Like you can be shot in the head by a hitman who's trying to kill a priest, or you can jump out of, you know, jump off a bell tower, or a demon can eat you. Either way, something's coming to get you. And I just love the way, I love the kind of, I love the uh, intentionality of some of the stuff that he's doing. So, you know, the way that he's, they show that card, that that, you know, uh, Ray looks at that card that the boy was holding. You know what I mean? It tells him why he was going to confess. And they cut right to that painting of that skeleton handing that guy a card. And I have to assume that that, that painting inspired that scene you know i mean that he would pick up that card and it's one of these weird things and that doesn't have like a it doesn't have a fully realized meaning in terms of like its symbolism but it is related and the um, ambiguity of its relation i think makes it all the more powerful and i think mcdonough is he's really good at that and i don't think it always works but it's always fucking cool you know what i mean and it's in if if he could get over the murdering people for no reason, and I don't think that's good. that's not going to happen. But I mean, even in three billboards, he kind of got away from it. You know what I mean? I mean like he wasn't so. just yeah. he wasn't just like you know Ray Fines and and um and 
There, there isn't an equivalent scene to Ray Fiennes and Colin Farrell running through the streets of Belgium of Bruges shooting at each other. You know what I mean? No. He's kind of gotten over that shit. And I, I fucking hate that stuff. Um, just because it seems so unrealistic. Like, I don't care how powerful Jimmy thinks he is. If you are running through the streets shooting a gun at somebody, there's going to be consequences to that. You can't just walk away from whatever that is. That shit always bothers me, and that's a, that's a flaw of mine that Alfred Hitchcock would be mad about. But... Um, Three Billboards, he kind of got over that. But all the other stuff, I mean, the pacing of this movie and the, the, the feeling of this movie and the tone of this movie is just so intense. And it like doesn't seem to want to be intense, but it just is so intense. And it's funny that I, I love the idea that Ray, too, is a novice at like being a hitman because he's so good at it. Like the way he kind of handles that Eric character is like he's like a born hitman. He's like supposed to do this job, but he's just now he's blighted with this one thing that he did and he can never get it back. And it's it's uh, like it's so uninteresting as of an idea that in Martin McDonough makes it like impossibly interesting. And it it creates like duality to Ray in Ray's that like is is technically proficient and and technically sound at being a hitman. But the ultimate character isn't built to be a hitman. Mm hmm. You know, he isn't it's it's kind of like his his moral core and his physical being are two different things at, at that point. Um, no. And, and, and you're right. Like like that. Like I noticed that Carl Burwell score, too, which has like a whimsicalness to it in a lot of ways, but just carries that intensity throughout. And it's, it's a very for, for such a, a humor filled film and such a, a kind of pleasure to watch as it is sometimes mm. it is inherently intense and inherently emotional like it's it's a gut punch in a lot of moments well it's just so dark i mean and so even the conversations that are funny and i'd be really interested to know what scenes like you really connected with when you first saw it like was it the you know um you called my kid a cunt scene or what scene was it but even though it's, it's a ray breaking down in the park is the one that's amazing like, okay yeah but it's it's so like it's tinged with this humor like he that he's doing it in a park there's people at the park you know what i mean they're having this back and forth about like you know you know right before that they have this back and forth about like what they were what they were doing and and Ken's just like nothing and he's clearly got a gun with a silencer on it and then they like can we go somewhere yeah. and talk and they just go to another part of the park that's hilarious but it's so sad and it's not it's you would think a movie like this would be angry or would be you know, it would be a different emotion, but it's not. It's a really deep existential human sadness um, that I don't think. And it's one of the think I think one of the pleasures of this movie is its ambiguity. I don't think it's fully articulated why Ray is so sad. It's definitely because he killed a kid, but I think there's there's something else there. There's a backstory thing that we don't know about, and I'm really cool not knowing about it because the the ramifications of us not knowing is that it just makes it that much sadder that he can't articulate like whatever it is that's eating him up inside. Well, it's, it's also interesting because like every time I watch this, there's a certain element to raise character that is, um, I don't want to say necessarily slow, but he's, he's definitely naive. He's, he's has an extreme naivety to him um, and an extreme lack of kind of self-awareness mm. that, all the more kind of punctuates the, the thematic goal of, of, you know, him needing to him, him deserving that kind of second chance. And, and I think a nice part of it too, is uh, something that really got 
me too that I noticed is um, there's kind of this nice bookmarking uh, where Kieran Hines has the priest gets gets shot and other something um, as he sees the boy uh-huh. and, before he falls. Yeah, and you kind of get the feel. You don't really hear it, but you think it's boy. And after Colin Farrell gets shot in the same exact way, like he says, little, he's saying little boy as well. And yep. it's this nice bookmark of like bookmarking the entire tale, but kind of bringing everything back together. And it's not so direct and it's not so in your face. Um, but he's Martin McDonald so carefully crafts the film and, and makes that film run at such a roughneck roughshod paste um, that you know what's happening. Even if like you're the most like casual film goers, you connect those two scenes together. Yeah. You oh, don't yeah, need yeah. any sort of reminiscence of it. It's just, it's there. It's, it's very obviously purposefully there. And, and it's not just, it's, 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 it's insane. The consideration and finesse that's handled in, in how the story is done. Yeah, it, it really is. And it's, it's uh, weird because I think in reality, it's a fairly, in reality, I mean, by like in film culture, I think there's a lot of people that really like it, but I think it's become kind of a minor, like a minor movie. I think probably has a cult following, but I think because three billboards won Oscars and Golden Globes and, and everything, um, and Seven Psychopaths may as well not even exist. Well, this, this, in Bruges, in Bruges won, in Bruges won Golden, when he won a, Colin Farrell won a Golden Globe. Yeah, and it got nominated for an Oscar. What was that? It's fireworks. It's fireworks, Mario. Or not fireworks, just just bombs. Um, but yeah, but in Bruges is is weird, and I think you know what's like is weird about McDonough's career is that every time he makes a movie, it seems to reset it. it seems to reset like it almost seems like he's keeps making like whatever the fourth movie he makes, people will treat it like it's his first movie somehow what well, but i think i think also in bruges that's while it might be considered kind of more a minor film in terms of the, the consciousness I, I do think it kind of sets the tone for three billboards being as anticipated as it was i think so too but it's weird because it almost seems like the guy talks about alcoves i love the alcove scene i just fucking love it when he <laughs> When they, when that guy's like alcoves, he's like nooks and like nooks and crannies, like yeah, nooks and crannies. Um, yeah, I love it. But this movie kind of seems like it exists inside of one of those alcoves. You know what I mean? Like it's <clears> not like it's not obvious. I think the the weird thing about this movie is it's so dark. It's so philosophical. It's so like heavy with existential dread. Not just like thriller dread, like real human dread. But the poster looks like like a, a fun kind of gangster comedy poster that like Dan Aykroyd would be in or something. You yeah, know it looks I mean? like eight heads in a duffel bag. Yeah, it's like it, the marketing of this Our movie. Our gross point blank. Yeah, it does have a gross point blank feel. Um, the marketing of this movie seems so terrible. Whole nine yards. Uh, pick, one of, pick one of those early aughts I liked, terrible. I liked, whole, I liked whole nine yards a lot as a teenager because of the Amanda Peet scene. Yeah, well, we... I think the whole culture really liked Amanda Peet for a while, and then they were just kind of like, "Yeah, you're not doing anything with this." Then they replaced her with Lake Bell. I like Lake Bell. I like Lake Bell's better actress. I like that movie. Um, In a world, no, I like that movie. Um, But it's weird. It's I think because of uh, because of the nature of these movies, 
it's like it was highly anticipated. Like Three Billboards was highly anticipated. People knew it was going to be good, and it was talked about as an Oscar movie for a really long time. But Three Billboards almost seems to have, because it's now been deemed problematic by a lot of people, it seems to have kind of been erased. And I think Seven Psychopaths got erased because it didn't make any sense. And I feel like Imbruge got erased just because it's we've he's just moved on. Everyone's moved on. It's become like, you know. Colin Farrell has done amazing work since In Bruges and you know Martin McDonough could have won best director for In Bruges and Brendan Gleeson has been in a ton of amazing stuff since In Bruges um and and Ray Fiennes I think is I think he's the one that comes out of this the worst because you know uh he gets the well he also came out the reader that year or the year felt no that year so yeah but also because <laughs> the one of the things that kind of occurring like always occurs to me when i see this movie is the the john hurt or richie or william hurt or richie performance from um history of violence where it's like this guy comes out of nowhere with like a weird accent and a kind of really in an in, in intensity to kind of steal the movie and i think ray finds tries to do that and he kind of does Ray Fiennes also has done that in like 50 other movies. You know what I mean? Like he is the guy that just does that in a lot of stuff. And yeah, William Hurt isn't. Yeah. William Hurt necessarily isn't the guy who's going to be like rich in like an, in an accent that doesn't even exist on earth. You know what I mean? Like Ray Fiennes is doing. We'll a talk. We will talk about history of violence. Yeah. I, and I, it's funny. And I can't wait to talk about it because I love that movie, but Ray I'm Fiennes, always shocked by how high on my list it is. Oh, but it, it deserves it. So, but this is a, I mean, this is the funny thing about, I think this list is that there are a bunch of movies and in Bruges is one of them. And history of violence is one of them that since we've been friends, these have been like the movies that we have had like a, maybe not in Bruges. We have had lots of conversations about in Bruges, but you have talked about as movies that I understand to be pivotal in your life. Like I was actually surprised that in Bruges was as low as it was. I, I assumed it was going to be higher because it was one of those movies, like maybe in the first couple of weeks that we worked together, you were like, I have some things to say about In Bruges. And obviously you didn't say that, but like, that's kind of how it came off. You know what I mean? I was like, oh, okay. No, that's, that's how I did. And I walked I, up to you. I, you barely knew me. <laughs> but it's an, an, and it will always stick in my head because I remember my aunt kind of being the same way. Like, here are some things about In Bruges that I liked. And I was like, uh, okay. Continue. Continue telling me about In Bruges. Like, Is she a type that usually talks about movies? What? Is she a type that usually has lots of thoughts about She does. Them, she likes she like she you know, we talk about movies a lot. We talk about TV and movie stuff a lot, but like In Bruges was one of those movies that I saw and I was like, good. And then she was like, Here are some thoughts about In Bruges. And then two years later you were like, Here are some thoughts about In Bruges, and I was like, Jesus. Like, <laughs> What's going on? All these people want to talk about In Bruges. It's a good movie. Um but I, but like those two movies, and there's you know there's movies that obviously are on your like higher on your list, which I understand as well. But those two movies like specifically were like those seem like Mario's movies. Like yeah, from if I was to make a if I was to make a list of Mario's pivotal movies, I would definitely put those movies on the list because they're just like his movies. You seem to own them, or embody them somehow, which is scary. Yeah, and I, th- I think I think a lot of what comes up later is stuff that sets groundwork and and i i have a little more of a thought with groundwork you know mm-hmm. and in bruges isn't setting any groundwork and bruges is just something where i'm like whoa this kind of like culminates all that groundwork yeah in yeah, yeah. Various pieces. well not culminates like 
it, it and my number three kind of run next to each other. And I think my number three is kind of like the true culmination of all that kind of groundwork in terms of doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, my number eight, number three, I should say. Uh, and my number nine. <laughs> <laughs> Surprisingly, all the same directors. Um, Good. But no, yeah, it's true. Like this, this is a film where like in terms of personal value, it, it's, it's, it's held at high esteem. Yeah, I'm glad I got. One, no, go ahead. Yeah. No, go ahead. Uh, yeah, no, I'm glad. I'm glad to see it again. I, I always come back to it every year or two, and it's always something new. There's, there's one sad bit of news. I was very excited at the beginning this year to see The Hangman on Broadway. It's gonna be the first time I was gonna see a, a Broadway show in, in quite a while. Because as we started this episode, um, well, started this discussion <clears throat> on 24, me and plays and not plays, but me and Broadway in general aren't good friends because I think Broadway's bullshit. Um, <laughs> but Hangman, his his 2015 play, was going to finally have its Broadway run. And you know who's going to play Mooney, who's the uh, main villain, kind of, of Hangman? Who? Dan fucking Stevens was going to play. Uh, yeah, part of me was like going to text you, be like, should we review Eurovision because of Dan Stevens? Just, just the Dan Stevens parts. Well, and then we and the kids watched they they watched the Night in the Museum trilogy this week for some reason, um, but Dan Stevens shows up in the third one and like steals a whole movie. And it's like Dan Stevens, God, is the best. Dan, Dan Stevens and Florence Pugh are just gonna make like a, a series of movies together. I hope so. The new new Bergman hum, uh, Bogart Mario. That would be awesome. We can both support that. So wait, did you yeah. didn't go? Because of the coronavirus? Well, no, it, it got canceled after 15 previews. I was waiting for it to like, Why? open. open. Because of coronavirus? Because cor- coronavirus happened. That sucks, Mario. I'm sorry. Yeah. Hopefully, maybe next year, they can get Dan Stevens back. I don't know. Dan but Stevens is who knows? Very they'll, high probably put some, they'll probably put some garbage in there. And by next year, Dan Stevens will probably be, you know, Bond. So who knows? Can I ask you a question, Mario? Yes. Not about In Bruges. But about Dan Stevens, why well, I figured I figured we're transitioning out of Vimbridge. Do we think that Dan Stevens <laughs> will ever win an Oscar? Uh it's possible. I, I could see it happening. Do this... I think so? Um, supporting in his fifties. Fine, anything. That's supporting in his fifties. I'll even take a Christopher Plummer Oscars in his eighties. Yeah, there's, there's a good, there's a good shot we're dead if, if that happens though. Well, sure, but like I think he's just a couple years older than me. <sighs> Which means he's younger than me. Dan Stevens. What am I going to do? It's hard to live knowing that Dan Stevens is out there. I'm telling you. No one saw that. No one saw Dan Stevens coming, Mario. He just showed up one day, fully formed. I did. I mean, well, I didn't see Downton Abbey, but I saw the guest. That's true. That's Dan Stevens. That's Dan Stevens' best. Those two things. It was all there. It was all there. Huh. I think the only reason you didn't absolutely hate the guest is because of Dan Stevens. That's true. I didn't hate the guest. I actually think you know why I didn't hate the guest because I didn't understand what the hell was <laughs> what the hell was happening. No, I'm going to kill you. What the fuck, David? <laughs> like the grenade seed, like lives in my lives in my but mind like, forever of him just holding up two grenades and be like. Meh. You know what makes the, looks the best part of it, though, is side head turn. Just the... Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> Here's some grenades. 
I'm Dan Stevens. Um, all right. Bruges. I'm sad there's no more Mark McDonough movies to review. Yeah, he's not making anything new. That sucks. But nobody. But he's one of those people. Movies. He's one of those people who could like pop out with like a movie and be like, "I made a movie." Well, he's got a crew now. Three billboards did that. So. Yeah, and I, I mean, I would love to do a, like a longer conversation about three billboards and kind of how people miss miss are misinterpreting it um, for ease of of conversation. As opposed yeah. to actually watching it and being like, yeah, that's bad. Everything is bad. There's no redemption here for any of these people. They're all, <laughs> they're all continue to be terrible. Oh, popular culture. All right, let's finish this episode, Mario. The bummer. If you want to bemoan popular culture, you can do so at Film Pivotal. Because Twitter, that's where you talk about things that are appropriate. <laughs> And you talk about them appropriately. Definitely not full of hyperbole and, and just terrible feelings. Uh, or you can send us an email. If, if Twitter's too public for you and you want to have like a private conversation with us, you can send us an email at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can message us uh, through our website, pivotalfilm.com, where we have a list of the movies that we've talked about or a list of the beers that we drank. We'll be featuring this... this uh, Fat Orange Cat Baby Kitten Beer on there. First Fat Orange Cat Beer. Um, and how to subscribe and links to our episodes and other stuff. So, uh, yeah. Next week, Mario. Are you ready? On a scale of 1 to 10. But feel free to use decimal points if you want to. How, ex- how not excited, how much are you looking forward to next week next week's new movie oh hamilton yeah um from one to ten yeah he said but feel free to use decimal points 0.15 is it like the broadway thing that you mentioned before is it because of the fact that it's old or is it because like it's so it's so ingrained in the popular culture that your opinion on the thing is going to be kind of you know it is what it is okay so three three major reasons one i dislike musicals in general two the music that i've heard from it i hate three i think alexander hamilton was a gigantic piece of shit and i have fears that this does not paint alexander hamilton as the gigantic piece of shit that he was uh so i mean it it it, it does not paint him like that and that's so what are the things that you get like if you want to enjoy it at all you'll have to get over is the fact that from a history perspective it is for shit um so i mean i could get over that i get over that i just don't want to i just i'm I'm not looking forward to hero worship of of a garbage human being yeah i don't know i wouldn't go so far as to say that he's yeah it's it's weird because it's not necessarily hero worship but they definitely ding him pretty good Lin-Manuel Miranda, like, comes down pretty hard on him, like, in regards to, like, cert- like personal aspects-, aspects of his life. But politically, um, they they do leave out a bunch of stuff which I I found, like, troubling in my initial watching of it as well. Like, the fact that like he was... leading directly to the power of Andrew Jackson, that sort of stuff? Not even that stuff. Not even looking that far forward, but the fact that he was, like, spent his whole time as Secretary of Treasury also, like, advocating for... or when he was under 
Not so. I mean, I guess a little less under George Washington because he was so like you know beholden to George Washington. But under Adams was just like advocating for war against everybody. Like he wanted to, he wanted a huge military, military, and to be fighting literally constantly against the Spanish, against whoever wanted to fight. So um, it's it's he's basically like Jackson before Jackson. Well, he's just. I mean, he's he's really complicated. And I think the movie. I think the 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 musical paints him as a as a socially uh like familially complicated person but not like a politically complicated person i think they kind of pick a couple of spots where so it's the thing it's not a history lesson so i think one of the problematic things i had with like with it when i first heard it when it first opened was that like they were doing all these interviews with people like people that saw it were like oh if cabinet battles were really like this I would pay more attention to politics. And I was just like, oh, that's like the wrong thing, man. That's the wrong thing yeah. to be taken away Maybe from Maybe you this. should just not vote then. <laughs> but we'll, yeah. But we'll we'll get to that stuff next week. But I was just curious. I was just, you know, it's going to be. Yeah, a- and I, I'm not going to give it a fair shake. <clears throat> it's, I mean, it's, it's, and it's weirdly entertaining. We're looking forward to it. I'm going to be honest with you. It's going to be hard for me to be objective about it. Like my family's so deep into this, into Hamilton that, uh, like, like I said, seeing my kids really happy, seeing something will be like, well, it made my kids really happy, and that's like the main thing in my whole life. So, what happens if it's just shots of like Lin Manuel Miranda's feet, though? Like, that's how badly framed it is. It's just always centered on his foot. So, here's a problematic thing, Mario, that I think the Oscars going to have to contend with that this year is that from all reports, this movie is like expertly directed, like beyond measure, expertly directed. Um, what do you do with a movie that got directed four years ago? Well, it came out this year. That's what I'm saying. So, like, you Boyhood, had, Boyhood got directed. That's true. Multiple years earlier. So, so, um, so Tommy Kale for director, and then the uh, Elise Renee Goldsberry or Renee Elise Goldsberry and Leslie Odom Jr. for uh, Angelica Schuyler and uh, Aaron Burr. Are, yeah, I don't know how you do acting nominations. That's the one thing. I'm I like, don't know either, but it's like one of the things that they're. Uh, the way that people are writing about them, they're revelations. Are they left out? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how they're well, going to, I don't know how they're going to figure that. Is this a performance? Is this a live performance? Yeah. So it was audience? two live performances. They filmed one and then they filmed a second one to catch things that they didn't get in the first one. So there is an audience there. Okay. So that, I don't know. I just, I don't, I, I, if that's the case, I'm definitely going to disqualify. And if, even if I love this, I'm going to disqualify all of them for acting because yeah, it's going to be hard. It's and not I think a film, and I think it would be, I think if anything, it comes in as like a documentary. Is that possible? I could, I could, I mean, if it's still a presentation, I could, I wouldn't be uncomfortable doing a director because they're still, it depends. It's going to, it's going to depend on how much like, if it's just with an audience, I assume they're playing to the audience still. But, I mean, yeah. like I said, this is all presumption. Well, that's, um, I, I'm interested in this conversation only because it's so weird. This is really outside of our wheelhouse. Yeah, like <laughs> completely. So um, it'll be it'll be odd. It'll be weird next week, but it'll be fun. So all it, right, it probably won't be as good as Reap of the Genetic Opera, though. So <laughs> as what? Reap of the Genetic Opera. What is that? It's a just terrible musical that um, Darren Lynn Bozeman made into a movie like ten years ago. Oh, I don't know who. I don't know any <laughs> of the things that you just said. 
Jared Lynn Bozeman, he did uh, Saw. Four. Two, oh. three, four, and Spiral. Oh, sure. Yeah. Cool. Very good. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, yeah, until next week, uh, go watch a movie. Watch Hamilton. Watch one of the Saw sequels. Drink a beer, and we will talk to you. I'm ready to be a mate.